Well, um, I wonder what the defining story of your life is. If you were talking to somebody, getting to know somebody, describing who you are, what is the thing which defines your life the most? Perhaps for those we've been uh, praying for this morning as new parents, and maybe entering parenthood is the thing which certainly feels like the most defining aspect of life. But at the moment here at Gateway, we're, we're teaching through the Old Testament using Peter Lightheart's book as a, as a basis. And we're at the moment looking at the story of the Exodus, which is kind of the great story of the Old Testament. It's the framing story. It's the story of God's people being rescued from slavery, brought into freedom. It's a story of death being transformed into life. But that great story, which frames so much of the Old Testament story, is actually part of an even bigger story, which we're looking at today, which is about the marriage supper of Yahweh, the marriage supper of the Lord. And um, the book of Exodus is long. It's uh, 40 chapters long. Uh, but the Exodus itself, the escape from Egypt, is done and dusted by chapter 14 of the book of Exodus. So you then have all those other chapters. Most of the book of Exodus is not about actually leaving Egypt. It's about the focus is on now you are free, now you're out of Egypt, now you're no longer slaves. This is how you are to live. And that's a story that we see throughout the Bible. The Bible's story is basically this, find rescue in God, pass through this exodus, this escape from death into life, from slavery into freedom, and then live like it. Live in the reality of your freedom, live in the reality of what it means to be a child of God. There's been a change of status and you need to live in the light of that. The thing is, though, that often, well, sometimes a change of status doesn't always equal a change in attitudes or actions. We see this when people have uh, tragically experienced the reality of abusive relationships. I know that's true for some in this room, that you can escape an abusive relationship, but it's still then really hard to live in a way which actually represents the full freedom that you're now in, the kind of the legacy of abuse can still be controlling and, and, and constraining to you. And the people of Israel had gone something through, through something like that. They had effectively been in an abusive relationship in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They're now free. The Lord's rescued them. They've had this miraculous escape from Egypt. But now they're free. They've got to learn to live like it because living like they're free doesn't come naturally to them. And when we are brought into relationship with God, our, our life, our, our pilgrimage is really learning to live in this relationship with God, this relationship of freedom, this relationship of love. And so really the, the overarching theme of the Bible in many ways is actually the theme of marriage, that we have been brought into a relationship with God, which the Bible describes in terms like marriage, Marriage as it should be, a marriage which is full of love and honoring and cherishing of one another. And that's what we see next in the story that we're working through. It's where we get to in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel escape from Egypt. They come to the desert of Sinai before Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at the portion of Scripture between Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. This is what it says, Exodus 19 verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. What we have here in this portion of Scripture, Exodus 19 through to Exodus 24, is like an enactment of a marriage. It's like a wedding. At a wedding, the bride and groom make promises to one another by which a covenant between them is formed. I call upon these people here present to witness. I take you to be my lawful wedded husband, my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. Better for worse, richer for poorer, sickness and health. There are promises which are made. There's an I do which is expressed Similarly to what we've just done with these parents, but with even more uh, significance in many ways. That initial public I do is the crucial moment in any marriage. In any marriage, that moment, that moment of declaration I do, this is what I covenant with you, this is what I promise, this is how we are now going to live. And of course, the great challenge then of marriage is that it extends beyond the few minutes of a wedding service at which you make the promises and say the I do's, it then extends for however long that God in his mercy gives you breath in your body to keep on through your life and throughout your marriage saying, I do, I do, I do, and honoring those covenant commitments that you've made. The point is, if you are married, don't live like you're not. If you're married, live like a married person, honoring the covenant promises that you've made to the person to whom you're married. And that is what is happening here in the book of Exodus. God is making promises to his people, and his people reply and say, we do, we do. We receive the Lord, we commit ourselves to him, we pledge ourselves to him, we're entering into covenant with him. And this imagery of marriage is used throughout the Bible. That's why I say it is the overarching story of the Bible. That's where it begins Right at the beginning, Adam and Eve, God creates man and woman, brings them together, marries them together. Uh, They are called to dwell in God's house. They're called to build family, to build community. Of course, they fail in that. And the rest of the story is really about God's working to restore what has been broken, to restore the broken marriage. And what happens here with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai is a, a picture of that, of what, in the end, is going to be worked out completely through the work of Christ. And so when we turn to the ministry of Jesus, and when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see the same story being described, the same story being told. It's why when we get to Ephesians 5, that great passage, often read at weddings, we see the relationship between Christ and his people, between Christ and his church, described in terms of a marriage. It's why when we get to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the picture which is given of what it means to know God is to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the story about God and his people dwelling together. God is building a house for his name, and he calls his people into covenant relationship with him. Marriage is the overarching shape and narrative of that story. 
Now, if you're new to Christianity, this might be somewhat different from what you thought. If you're new to church, new to Christianity, probably what you imagine Christianity to be about is primarily about rules and morality and being a good person. And yes, there are standards that we Christians are called to keep. We are meant to be moral people. We're meant to be good people. We're meant to be upstanding people, just as you are in a marriage. Grace would be unimpressed if I slept with other women and beat our kids and squandered our money. There is a moral standard to which I am meant to hold in my marriage. That's some of what I promised her when we got married 27 years ago, that I wouldn't do those other things. But I didn't enter my marriage saying to Grace, you know, what I'd really like to do once we're married is sleep with lots of other women and beat whatever children we're given and squander our money. That's what I'd really like to do, but I'm just going to have to suck it up and be married to you and just tough it out. No, the reason that we got married is because we were in love and we wanted to do one another good and live in relationship together. It's about relationship. It's about wanting to be together. It's about wanting to do one another good. It's about love. And that is what Christianity is like. It's not just that we kind of begrudgingly have to perform certain things, act in certain ways. No, we love God because we know his love for us. We want to be in relationship with him. We know that does us good. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's about stepping in to a relationship of love. And so we do obey the Lord, but we obey the Lord because, because we have been loved, not to earn his love. And the hope of Christianity, the hope we have, is of a complete, perfect experience of that love. And that's where the story is headed. That's the conclusion of the story. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of Yahweh. It's God and his people living in this perfect unity of love. That's what Christianity is about. That's what we're called to experience in part now, and that's, that's where it ends, this unity of love with God. And what we see here in the Exodus is a precursor, a taste of that completed story. What happens with the people here in Sinai provides a pattern for how the people of God are to live. Uh, what, God has, what God has done for us becomes a pattern of what we are to do. And these are people who have been rescued. They've gone through the Exodus. They're Exodus people, and so they are to live like Exodus people. They're to live as free people in this relationship of love with God. You've been rescued, so live like it. We've had a picture of some of this today with our thanksgiving for these children, that having children is an act of building community. It's about a growing community, and there are expectations then for parents in terms of how they raise their kids. And as Christians, we've kind of set some expectations before these parents about what it means to be Christian parents. 
And there are also expectations for us as the wider community, which is why John asked that question of us in terms of will we help and support and care for these parents and their children as well, that actually this is part of a community deal together. And the goal of all of this is life, it's health. And so when the parents said we do, and when we as a congregation said we do, it's not about being compelled to keep certain rules. Actually, it's about a desire for life, a desire for health, about an experience of love. And then we see this in the commands that the Lord, Yahweh, gives to his people here at Sinai. These covenant expectations, these marriage expectations. There's a relationship between God and his people which is intended to create life, intended to create health. And this is a relationship which reflects exodus, rescue, freedom, life. Not not rules that restrict and control, but... Covenant commitments that create flourishing. And so, don't do things which undermine your marriage. If you're married, don't do things which undermine your marriage. And the commands that the Lord gives to his people is basically that. Don't do things which undermine this relationship. People of God, Exodus people, rescued people, free people, death to life people, now live in a way which reflects what has happened to you. And that means living in the way of the Lord. Don't go after other gods. Why not? Because those other gods will only defile you. And in the end, they're nothing. In the end, they're gods that you can sit on, as we saw last week. Stay faithful. Why? Because faithfulness is what builds family. Don't harm other people. Why not? Because in the end, that is actually to harm yourself. Act responsibly towards one another. Practice justice. Why? Because that's how you build health in a society, how you build health in a community. And so when we read the Old Testament, and part of why we're teaching through the Old Testament is to help us read it with more understanding, when you read, wade perhaps, through those long sections of Scripture, in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where there are all these rules and commands which can seem absolutely bamboozling and confusing to us, keep the overarching narrative in view. There are things in the law and the rules of those Old Testament books, which seem strange to us and certainly culturally can seem very alien. But the overall narrative is this. This is what it means to live in relationship with God. This is what it means to be a free people. This is what it means to be an exodus people. This is what it means to live in love. And that's what we see the Lord saying to his people here in the book of Exodus. And a key example of that is the commandment about the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, as we call them in Exodus 20, the command about the Sabbath is the fourth commandment, and it's the longest, by a long way, the longest commandment that God gives his people. This is what the Lord says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments. And then a little bit longer on in this marriage service, Exodus 23, we get the command expanded. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. 
Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Now it's clear from these passages that the Sabbath is really important, but it's often a command that we struggle to understand. Some of the other Ten Commandments are much more straightforward. Do not murder, do not steal. Well, duh, that's kind of obvious. Don't do those things. But what is it about the Sabbath? What's the deal with the Sabbath? We need to see how the Sabbath does shape our relationship with God. Think, think about what the Israelites had been. They had been slaves in Egypt. They lived under brutal, oppressive, tyrannical labor, under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They'd been compelled to work in brutal conditions, day after day, hour after hour, without any rest, without any refreshment. They had known no rest. And then God rescues his people. He brings them out of Egypt into an experience of rest. And in giving them these commands about the Sabbath, what the Lord is saying is that the shape of their lives is no longer to be endless, continual, exhausting labor. But instead their lives, and actually even their work, is to be shaped by rest, by an experience of community and worship and joy and love. They've been rescued they're now married to the Lord, and they're to live in the freedom of that. And so they're to know what rest is. That's what the Sabbath is about. And Sabbath is something which they are to experience and something which they are also to share. And so the Lord in his instructions to them about Sabbath doesn't simply say to them, you people are to rest to have Sabbath, but no, the whole kind of environment around them is to know something of Sabbath rest. Foreigners living amongst them and servants working for them. The animals, even the wild animals, even the ground is to know rest. There's a, a, actually a powerful kind of ecological message here. The Lord is concerned about the health even of the wild animals and of the soil. Give the land rest. Don't just exhaust it. There's a spreading out of benefits of relationship with God. You've been rescued. You've come out of Egypt. You've come out of slavery. You've come out of death. You've come into life. You've come into freedom. You've come into love. Live in that and share that. Create a, create a pattern of living that breaks the power of Pharaoh. Now, there's so much here that is very relevant for us. We live in a society that prizes personal freedom and autonomy, yet, yet so often really out what we prize as freedom and autonomy really is us just living ever more under Pharaoh's heel. The 24-7 life that we now live of consumption and work, and to be honest, even so much of our leisure, which isn't restful, and we've all done this. We know what it's like. You sit there just flicking through Netflix and you think it's leisure. Actually, it's not. It's consumption and it's not restful. It's living under the 24-7 drive of Pharaoh. And, and the big corporations, is the businesses, they don't really care about you. 
They might say they do in their adverts and might say that Meta is going to bring you all kinds of freedoms and joy and all the rest, but really what the corporations want to do is monetize you. That's what they want from us. They want to monetize us. And they don't want you to have a day off from their depredations. They don't want you to have a day when you are not subject to their tyranny. They don't want you to have a day when you're not subject to brick-making. They want you every day to be plugged in and engaged with their agenda. Think about the, uh, the moves towards driverless cars. There's questions we could ask about why. Why is that such a big agenda? There's also a kind of irony. Why is it that some of those most engaged in trying to create driverless car technology are working the hardest to get people into flights into space. Something very odd about that. Flights into space, completely unnecessary, ecologically disastrous, but we don't want you to drive your own car anymore. Something very strange about that. But anyway, often what's said about driverless cars is it's going to be about freedom. You won't have to have all the hassle on your commute of driving yourself and the tiredness and all the rest. Really, what the driverless car are about is about making you even more of a captive consumer. Because you'll get into your driverless car, and before it starts, you'll have to scroll through a whole load of terms and conditions with a whole load of adverts on them at the same time. And then the, uh, ad the algorithm will plot a route for your car to drive you to work, which will happen to take you past all these billboards it wants you to see, and past places where it wants you to be stimulated to spend more money. That's really the motive. Why do these big tech companies want you to drive a driverless car? Because it means you'll see more of that advertising. You'll be more subject to them. You'll be more under Pharaoh's tyranny. You'll be making more bricks. That's what it's all about. And that's how the gods always work. They're always confiscatory. They're always insatiable. They're always like Pharaoh. They're always saying more, 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 make more, do more, produce more. And that's why so much of life, even our leisure, feels like is just consumption. Want you to keep making bricks. Want you to be restless. Now, Yahweh, the Lord, is very different from that. Because the Lord himself is a God who rests. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the Sabbath day. And the world is restless. The world is restless, isn't it? And that infects us all. But as God's people, we have been called into restfulness. We're called into peace. We're called into love. This is what theologian Walter Brueggemann has to say about this. Christians may find the Sabbath commandments the most urgent and the most difficult of all the commandments of Sinai. We are much accustomed to Pharaoh's system. For that reason, the departure into restfulness is both urgent and difficult, for our motors are set to run at brick-making speed. To cease even for a time, the anxious striving for more bricks is to find ourselves with a light burden and an easy yoke. It is now as then enough to permit dancing and singing into an alternative life. That's what Sabbath means. Sabbath means being free. Free to dance and to sing rather than to be making endless bricks. And you know, it is possible to step outside the torrent of 
advertising and activity and production and consumption. Because God calls his people out of restlessness and into rest. You don't have to be subject to Pharaoh's tyranny. You do not have to do more, sell more, control more, know more, have your kids in ballet or football more, be younger or more beautiful. You've been set free from all that. You can take a break from that stuff. That's Pharaoh. You can take a break from that stuff and step into the rest of God. Why? Because you have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You've been called into relationship, into marriage with the living God. And that means you can know that you are secure, you're loved, you are at peace. Pharaoh isn't boss anymore. You come to God in Christ, Pharaoh is no longer boss. And so often we live as, he, as if he still is, but he's not. We have a new boss. We have a new relationship we're in a marriage relationship with God. Now, isn't that what you need to hear in this restless old world? Our world is so restless, and so often we're so restless. And what we need to hear is a message of rest, which is what we receive in relationship with the living God. We've had our baby Thanksgivings today. Today is also the first Sunday in Advent. It's a time when we start to turn our minds towards Christmas and celebrate the baby who was saviour of the world. But the irony, of course, is that so often Christmas itself is an incredibly restless time. It's a brick-making time. There's so much to do. There's so much to prepare. There's so many phone calls to answer. There's so much to buy, so much to spend. We think about the baby, but of course the baby is the one who became the bridegroom. And we need to turn to him, maybe for the first time for you today, or maybe for the thousandth time for you today, and say to him, I do. I do. Just like those people at Sinai, when they heard the word of the Lord through Moses, said, we do. We do. Just as parents this morning have said, yes, we do. Just as bride and groom in a wedding say, yes, I do. We again today need to turn to the bridegroom and say, I do, I do. I choose to find rest in you. I choose to live as what I am, someone who's been set free, no longer a slave, no longer under Pharaoh's tyranny, no longer just consigned to brick-making, but someone who is in relationship with God, the freedom and the liberty of that. Find rest in him because he loves you. He loves you. Thank you, Lord, for this relationship of love to which you have called us. Thank you, as your people, we enter into marriage covenant with you, sealed by your blood shed at the cross. And so we can step into that life of freedom and liberty of rest. And I pray for us, Lord, I pray for us in this season, which so often is a restless one, that we would not be, uh, we would not make ourselves again slaves to, to Pharaoh's tyranny, but we would know what it is to walk in the freedom of the Lord. I pray, Lord, that just as the Israelites were called to share that freedom with the wider world, we would share what is ours in Christ with a wider world as well, Lord. Thank you how those Sabbath blessings were meant to be extended to foreigners and servants and animals on the ground. Lord, I pray that because of what you've done in us, we might extend the good news of the love of God to this restless world around us. Thank you you've called us, you've made covenant with us, that we're in relationship with you. 
which cannot be broken. Thank you that our story is one of relationship with God, of anticipating the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I pray that we would live like that in the freedom and the joy, the security, the peace, and the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. For your glory, ask it, Lord. Amen.